Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, we're off for the holidays, but here is an incredible episode of Commons that you really need to hear. Before we start, I just want to let you know that this episode includes a few instances of an anti-black slur, so it may not be suitable for everyone. On a brisk autumn afternoon, Ricky Atkinson took us on a tour of the neighborhood he grew up in. And of course, the neighborhood's not the same. I don't have... 16 aunts and uncles and 65 cousins here anymore. Yeah, how much family you got around here? Well, just, just, my mother lives here, my nephew lives here still. Yep. Alexandra Park is a downtown Toronto neighborhood that sits next to Kensington Market. And it was created in the 1960s as a housing project and blocked off from the rest of the city. There was a wall that went around it. Okay. And the remnants of the wall are here. It was that high. Ricky doesn't live here anymore. But he runs a pottery studio for the local kids, so he's always in the area. And as we walk around, he keeps running into people he knows. We walk past an African drum shop, and Ricky insists on popping in. This is open. I'll say hi to this guy. He's a good neighborhood guy. Oh, you got a class. I just wanted to say hi, brother. I got some reporters following me around again. Oh, beautiful, so, beautiful. How's things? Okay, good great. Man. Anybody know this never was this man? <laughs> I'll come and see you again. So he teaches... Uh, Even though he's 65, Ricky's still got the build of a boxer. He's tall and broad-shouldered, but he doesn't feel menacing in any way. 
we run into another friend of his who owns a local restaurant. Hey, Sam, I got a bug on me. What? I'm wired. Good, good. So Sam's a good old friend of mine, trying to make this restaurant work, trying to keep out the weather and, and get the people to come. Sam's got some guys setting up his patio in time for the dinner crowd. We ask him how he knows Ricky. He says they met when he was 12. I was standing in the laneway and I, these rocks are whipping by me, right? <laughs> and I turn around and I... And there was Ricky and his cousins throwing stones at him. <laughs> that was the tester. Can he jump? Can he dance? I don't know. I don't know yet. <laughs> we wave goodbye and walk away from Sam's restaurant. Okay, Sam, nice seeing you, man. Yeah, We're walking. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, anyways, Sam don't know it, but I put a bomb in there. That's not a joke. Ricky really did put a bomb in the building where his friend Sam's restaurant sits today. We set it up, so it was just a fire bomb. So stop anyone from going in that laneway. That's because Ricky Atkinson is one of the most prolific bank robbers in Canadian history. In the 1970s and 80s, he was the leader of the Dirty Tricks gang. And in a few short years, Ricky and his crew robbed dozens and dozens of banks in and around Toronto. And one of his most daring heists took place right next to where he grew up, in Kensington Market. So this was the hub of shopping in, in the Toronto. Literally, the whole downtown core came together to make this street was the busiest street. And there was only one bank in the area. Ricky had been eyeing it his whole life. Kensington Market is compact. The whole neighborhood is a small square bounded by four major streets. There's not many ways for cars to get in, so Ricky took advantage. So I put a car at the bottom, blocked the street. I put a car at the top, blocked the street. I put a car on these side streets, blocking the street. So we started on Spadina all the way to Bathurst. We blocked off just by parking cars. I had 11 guys do that. How many cars do you have? I don't know, 10, 15 cars. All over we had cars. <laughs> Yeah, we just used to steal them and park them in different places, right? Right next to the bank, in what is now Sam's restaurant, Ricky's crew rigged up a van full of tires and an explosive connected to a timer. The guys go in, 60 seconds, this van blows up here. They set a timer. That's their signal that they have to leave. So they're in doing their thing inside, jumping the counters, going into the vault. That's the stuff we did that's different. Anytime you go into the vault as a bank robber, you, you put a thousand percent more probability of getting caught because you're taking longer and you're going deeper into the, into the bank. But we had enough guys who could do that. The streets into the neighborhood were blocked off with stolen cars. A van was flaming right next to the bank and Ricky himself called the fire department. And I did this out of the, the kindness of my heart, I guess. I phoned the fire department and said, there's a fire in front of the bank on Augusta Street. And the only way you can get to that fire is to pull your trucks up behind Sazmart parking lot. And they did. The fire trucks had the added benefit of making sure the cops had an even harder time getting to them. Right before they're about to make their getaway, another set of tires is set alight, sending even more smoke up into the air. And then they make their getaway through the narrow streets and alleys that make up Kensington Market. In through the laneways, right? We all split up. Some come up through these laneways up here through that laneway up there. They can get to college. The other ones through the laneways get to Spadina. The other ones through the laneways get to Dundas. And once you cross Spadina, once you cross Dundas, and once you cross uh, college, you don't have to worry anymore. You're literally, you're not into the game anymore. 
Ricky Atkinson and the Dirty Tricks gang had sealed off an entire downtown neighborhood in Canada's biggest city to rob a bank, and they got away. They used explosives, they employed counter-surveillance. This was no normal crew of bank robbers. And that's because Ricky Atkinson was no normal thief. When he was young, Ricky met a man who gave him rigorous training to commit these kinds of crimes. That man would become a central player in the biggest scandal in RCMP history. He called himself the General. And during important historical moments in multiple countries, he shows up again and again. You can find his name in the footnotes of academic articles or buried at the bottom of government reports. But for the people who encountered him, his arrival was often a turning point. There's much we don't know about the general, and even the little we do would be unbelievable if it wasn't also true. I'm Archie Mann, and for Canada Land, this is Commons. Ricky Atkinson was in grade one when he orchestrated his first heist. The first thing as a gang that we really stole was a box of cookies from a place in the Kensington market that was a cookie manufacturer. So we stole the box of cookies, brought them to school, gave them to all the kids, everybody was happy. And from the beginning, he had a knack for hustling. Ricky and his friends would shine shoes and do chores for the local shopkeepers, but they'd also steal little things on the side. There was lots of people stealing in this neighborhood, not only us. And we got to see that. We got to see if I stole a fur coat from him across the street, I could take it to his cousin up the street and tell him, I stole it from your cousin's place. And it seems like, yeah, everybody's got insurance. Just bring it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From an early age, Ricky learned not to trust white people. His dad, Sonny Atkinson, was a black and indigenous man from Nova Scotia. My father went to Sudbury to work in the mines because he was working in the mines after he got out of the World War II, met my mother, came here and moved into Kensington Market. He was a no-nonsense military guy, conservative in his thinking. He was also the uh, product of a lot of racism come out of Halifax. At the time, Kensington Market and Alexandra Park were home to a big diaspora of other black and indigenous Nova Scotians. Most of them were Ricky's family members. And all of them were routinely harassed by the Toronto police. One day, when he was 11, Ricky and another boy were walking down the street with some bikes that they'd recently bought. And a cop stops us. Where are you niggers going with that with those stolen bikes? It's like... Bikes aren't stolen, so they get out of the car, they search us, and I had matches on me. And they said, why do you have matches on you? Are you the niggers that are burning down all the buildings? Because guys were burning the old buildings down, garages down, that kind of stuff. He made us leave our bikes there, took us to number three station on Claremont Street. And while in number three station, he threatened my father. And I said, you can't touch my father, he'll punch you out. He was the toughest guy in the neighborhood. And he said, that nigger raises his hand towards me. I'll shoot him dead. And that triggered me. It caused me to say, I'm going to get a gun and kill that cop if he kills my father. Even though he was just a kid, Ricky wasted no time preparing himself. So I started to acquire weapons all the time. So we used to steal guns. 
out of Eaton's. We used to steal them out of stores around here to steal them. We'd go to Eaton's, we'd cut holes in our pants pocket, and we'd put a rifle down our pants pocket and walk out like we had a broken leg, right, with a limp. And the police brutality didn't stop. He remembers one time when the cops came around to arrest his cousin Wade. Wade pushed a cop through a glass door and got away by jumping from a fourth floor window. The cops then went to his mother's house, was right there, and started to look for Wade. Wade wasn't home. So they started looking in drawers and in envelopes. And my uncle, Frankie Bruce, who ran a baseball league for kids here and was a postman. He was a really straight up good guy, a city employee. They beat the shit out of him. His wife, my Aunt Babes, is actually bigger than him and a better fighter. So she came to her husband's aid and she got smacked to the ground. And the cops had her by the hair, pulling her along the sidewalk. And the other cops hitting her with billies, using the N-word. And the neighborhood erupted. Just went crazy. Guns come out. All the kids started blocking off stuff, throwing rocks at cop cars. A riot it was looming that night. Ricky was watching all of this happen. And he decided he wasn't going to stand aside. He went and got one of the guns that he had stockpiled. I had a 30-odd six then with a scope. So I grabbed my 30-odd six and I went onto a roof on Dundas and zeroed in on Novus. Bert Novus was a 14-division officer that Ricky had had numerous run-ins with before. And now, Ricky had a gun trained on him. I'm like, okay, if this gets any, any harder than what it is, you're going to bite a bullet. So people screaming, yelling, lots of cop presence here. And then my father came out and he shook Novus's hand and you could hear the crowd, you know, and it was over. And that's just a single episode of many that happened in this neighborhood that people don't even know that they had that racial strife happening here, right? And it's that racial strife that caused Warren Hart to appear. Warren Hart. Sometimes he went by Clay Hart. Often, people just referred to him as the general. Ricky remembers where he was when he first heard about Hart, who was a Black Panther coming up from the States. His friend Laverne was the one to tell him. She comes running into the school, running into the locker room. Hey, Rick, Rick, man, there's a Black Panther recruiter, man. We've got to meet you, man. Oh, man, this is it. This is it for us. And he's like projecting this image that if we uh, line ourselves with the Black Panther Party, we're not going to get harassed by the police. That's basically was the message. Ricky wasn't the kind of kid who was interested in the radical politics a group like the Black Panthers were espousing. Sure, he used to sell copies of Chairman Mao's Little Red Book, but that was just another way to make money. I wasn't political. I was a hustler. Those were hustles to me. If, I'm, if I can sell 10,000 Black Panther newspapers, good. But if I can sell 10,000 A Nation of Islam newspapers, I'd have sold those too. It, it didn't matter to me. But he hated the cops. So he agreed to go meet Warren Hart. Meeting Warren Hart would be a turning point in Ricky Atkinson's life. It would turn Ricky from a smart, athletic kid who dabbled in petty crime into one of the most feared criminals in the country. He was dark like uh, Reverend King. He was short, stocky like Reverend King. He was a military planner. He was a captain in the army. He was a demolition expert. So he was a serious guy, but uh, there was no laughter in him, no joke in him. Hart was in his mid-40s when Ricky met him, and he didn't dress with a lot of flash. He looked more like a Black Panther dressing kind of guy. Black leather jacket, black pants, black turtleneck sweater. In terms of his credentials, he came here from Baltimore as the head of the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party. And he was also claimed to have been a bodyguard at some point for Malcolm X. 
That's David Austin, the author of Fear of a Black Nation, Race, Sex, and Security in 60s Montreal. Hart is a figure who turns up in the strangest places at the strangest times. And wherever he ends up, trouble isn't too far behind. Warren Hart said he was close to American black power leaders like Huey P. Newton and Kwame Ture, formerly known as Stokely Carmichael. He said he was in Canada to recruit young black men to the revolutionary cause. Even today, it's hard to separate fact from fiction when it comes to Warren Hart. Some people have told us he was a Korean War veteran. Others say Vietnam. There's reason to doubt that he was ever Malcolm X's bodyguard, but the part about him being the head of the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panthers? That's true. Good evening. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years old and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States was assassinated in Memphis tonight. A sniper's bullet cut down... In April 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, leading to violent uprisings in cities across the United States. In one of those strange coincidences, the assassin actually fled to Toronto and hid out in Kensington Market, where Warren Hart and Ricky Atkinson would meet a few years later. The riots were especially fierce in Baltimore. We have proclaimed a state of emergency in Baltimore City and Baltimore County. Every available unit of the Maryland National Guard has been fully mobilized and deployed within the city. Not too long after, Warren Hart co-founded the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panthers, which was growing across the country. Eddie Conway joined the Baltimore Panthers that same year. Here he is speaking to the Real News Network. To me, the Black Panther Party was the only group that was, one, addressing the, the needs of the community in terms of feeding children and, you know, uh, self-defense, in terms of educating and so on. There's photos of Warren Hart from around this time serving food at Black Panther breakfasts. But Eddie Conway says that behind the scenes, Hart was causing immense damage. One of my friends, Axie, was murdered as a result of this guy. He sent him out on a mission that was unauthorized and illegal, and he got an entanglement with the police and ended up getting killed. Conway became suspicious of Hart. And then I started investigating the captain and determined that he wasn't who he said he was because he didn't even live where he said he was living. He didn't work where he was supposed to be working. So I actually reported to California and they sent an investigation team down from like New York. And during the process of investigating, he fled. He fled Merlin. He fled the country. Not long after, Eddie Conway was convicted of killing a police officer in a questionable trial. He's always maintained his innocence, and he was eventually released from prison in 2014 after serving nearly 44 years. The next place Warren Hart pops up is another city where black people were organizing for their rights, Montreal. Here's David Austin again. Now, of course, you have the civil rights and the black power movement in the United States the emergence of groups by 1966, like the Black Panther Party. And all of that reverberated within Canada, too, from Nova Scotia, Montreal, and in Toronto. In practice, if not by law, Montreal was a segregated city. Many Black folks, in large part as a result of poverty, were forced to live in substandard housing in some of the poorer districts of Montreal, mostly in the Southwest. Very few Black Canadians 
attended university. And to the extent that there were black folks in the universities, most of them had come here from other countries. That black population in the 1960s became restive and became organized in various ways. And that produced this mortal fear, sense of fear, this mortal sense of dread in the eyes of the state policing apparatus. And there was one event in particular that made the police take notice. The Sir George Williams University riot. Are you prepared to stand up for your rights? Are you prepared to stand for your rights? Are you going to let the administration push your head? In 1968, there are several students at, at what is now Concordia University, which was then Sir George University, filed a complaint against a professor who they claimed was systematically failing black students. After a series of inadequate responses, the institution not taking the complaint seriously, the students decided to occupy the computer center, the computer lab, on the ninth floor of the hall building at Concordia. We are on the ninth floor in the computer center, and that's where the room, the meeting is going to be continued. Let's take a look at uh, the action at Sir George Williams University tonight. Right now, as we talk, some 200 students are still occupying the computer center there. They've tried to keep the place clean. There's been no vandalism. As the sit-in ends its fourth day, matters are still at an impasse, and the administration is considering its next move. So far, the sit-in is peaceful. One of the leaders of the protests was Rosie Douglas. I am a fighter for liberation. I'm one who believes that my country has the capacity to, to produce and provide all our people with a decent standard of living. And to do that, there have to be certain basic structural changes. Rosie Douglas came here from Dominica by the mid-late 1960s, was studying at McGill University. Douglas came from an affluent Dominican family and even counted former Prime Minister John Diefenbaker as a friend. But in the late 1960s, he'd become a key voice within Montreal's black left. Douglas and the other protesters occupied the computer lab for about two weeks. The university promised to negotiate with them, but they backed out and instead the police were sent in. The occupiers barricaded themselves in and somehow the computer lab was set on fire. Who started the fire is still in dispute to this day, but the occupation came to an end. On February 11th, people were arrested for their participation in the protests. People went to prison for their participation in the protests, including Anne Cools and Rosie Douglas. So there were genuine casualties. There were people that were arrested. The Sir George Williams University occupation reverberated throughout the Americas. It galvanized members of the black population across Canada, and perhaps one of the first times in Canada's modern history, put the issue of race and racial exclusion, and in particular in relation to people of African origin, on the map. But it also did so internationally. There were protests in the Caribbean in support of the students. There were protests in Europe, in the UK, and in the United States, or people mobilizing in the United States in support of these students. Even though he wasn't present when the fire was set, the police fingered Rosie Douglas as one of the ringleaders. He served 18 months in prison. While he was imprisoned, he met a like-minded man who shared his politics. He was a Black Panther from the States, and even though he was two decades older than Douglas, they soon became close. When they were released, both of them moved to Toronto. The man's name was Warren Hart. 
Right before he met Warren Hart, Ricky Atkinson had reached a fork in the road. Yes, he was stealing, he had guns, but so did a lot of other kids in the neighborhood. I was in grade nine. I was at Central Commerce School, basketball star, uh, in one of the best basketball teams of all the high schools in the city. And I was looking forward to basketball scholarship, maybe. I aced all my courses. I mean, school is easy for me for some reason, because I like it. I've always have, right? I had a, a dream of being an airplane mechanic and going to BC and doing that airplane bush work there. But all that changed when his friend Laverne told him about the Black Panther recruiter in town. Ricky was excited to meet him, so they decided to get together at a local bar. So I walk in with Laverne. There wasn't a lot of people there. Middle of the afternoon, but there. I remember Sunny Boy's song coming on. Uh, Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, because it was a blues bar. And I found that coincidental, because I was a blues guy. So I'm talking to them. There's a couple of guys around the, the peripheral of the table. Of course, we're scanning them. They don't feel like cops. They don't smell like cops to us. So we start talking. What do you want? Black Panther stuff. I'll teach you how to deal with the man. You'll get respect in the community. The police won't mess with you. All this kind of stuff he's trying to sell us. Warren Hart wanted to know how many people Ricky could get together. Ricky said 10 right now, maybe 50 in total down the road. So Hart told him to bring some reliable friends to his house later that night. So he lived in a rooming house. We go in a rooming house, and this white girl opens the door, and she's like reddish hair, 18 years old, typical adherent to black radical politics in the late 60s. So it didn't throw us off. Ricky had a duffel bag with him. Hart says, what do you got in the thing? Open it up, 10 guns. The red-haired woman, her name was Margaret Morgan, was holding onto a briefcase. So she has a briefcase. She opens a briefcase, and it is a grenade and some sticks of dynamite and some other military preliminary explosives. So that's what the class was about. So we did a class that night on the different grades of dynamite. So we said, this is what I'm going to teach you guys. I'm going to teach you improvised explosive techniques, escape and evasion techniques, military tactics. That's what you're going to learn. Some of Ricky's friends weren't interested. One said he only wanted to make money by pimping girls. Another just didn't care about politics. But the rest of the teenagers, including Ricky, kept coming back to Warren Hart's apartment for more training. And Ricky kept supplying Hart with ever more guns. So we'd walk up there all the time and just hang there and listen to revolutionary rhetoric. He would be on the phone talking to other Black Panther people, all kinds, all over the world. He was talking to different people. And sometimes you say, yeah, this is Ricky's my right arm. Say hi to him. And it was under Hart's tutelage that they started to rob banks. The money was supposed to go to the Huey P. Newton Defense Fund. And Ricky's crew had no problem robbing banks. They felt it was payback for centuries of oppression. But Hart? He wanted to take things further. It all came to a head with him because he wanted to kill someone during a robbery. And we Canadians are like, why? You're in Canada. You don't have to kill Canada. We don't kill people here. We just There's enough for everybody. So he was adamant that he wanted to shoot these bodyguards that were doing a cash delivery at a bank. Ricky knew that they could just grab the money and run. There was no need for anyone to be killed. But So we're saying, why don't we just, we call it snatching a football. Why don't we just snatch the football? No, you got to shoot the guys. We're like, something's wrong with this guy. Ricky and the others didn't kill any security guards, but Warren Hart kept training them and putting them to use. In May 1972, African Liberation Day parades were held all over the world. 
the Western Guard, a white supremacist group, had threatened to attack the Toronto event. So Warren Hart told Ricky and the others that they would serve as security. And Hart gave Ricky and his brother Dwayne very specific instructions in case something went wrong. He said to me to kill the chief of police, who I shadow. And I've got guns all over me. My brother's armed with two thirty eights and a twenty five automatic. And his job was to shoot into the room that held all the cops to stop them from rushing out. Shoot. Just to freeze them in that room. That was his job. My job was to shadow the brass and open up on them if the shooting started. Luckily, nothing happened that day. But Ricky's days as a young panther were numbered. Not long after, he was caught in the middle of an armed robbery, and Ricky went to prison. But he stayed in touch with Warren Hart. While Warren Hart was training his gang of teenage bandits, he was also serving as Rosie Douglas's personal bodyguard and driver. At the time, Rosie Douglas had been released from prison and was facing deportation and Hart was driving Douglas around in his Lincoln Town car to speaking events and to meet with other black organizers. Now, you might remember Lennox Farrell from our first episode in this series. Well, during the early 1970s, he was involved with the Black Students' Union at the University of Toronto, and he remembers when the stocky American started showing up with Rosie Douglas. One of the people who started to come to our meetings was a guy called The General. He was an African-American guy and said he had been a member of the Black Panthers. And uh, we took him at his word. But I remember that two people, one Margaret Gittins, kept telling him, why is it you're always telling us that uh, we have to go and get guns? His line was, you got off the pigs, you got off the pigs. That was a basic line, yeah, you got off the pigs. And people felt uncomfortable with this guy. Hart kept trying to convince the black students to pick up guns and kill police officers. But none of them were interested. At the time, Rosie Douglas was one of the most prominent black activists in Canada. He traveled across the country, giving speeches and meeting with indigenous groups, Quebec sovereigntists, and other potential allies in the broader social justice movement. Gary Crystal was part of the Marxist Revolutionary Group in Vancouver at the time. He had met Rosie Douglas in Toronto in 1973. E more or less uh, was along the same wavelength as we were of trying to build a broad coalition of different groups that were fighting for social justice. Douglas came to visit Vancouver not long after, and he wanted to go up to Mount Curry, a few hours north of Vancouver, where some members of the Lilwat First Nation had set up a blockade. So Crystal took Douglas up, along with his bodyguard and driver, who introduced himself as Clay Hart. I remember most about Clay Hart is he made great sweet potatoes because they were staying in my place. He really knew how to cook Southern Afro-American food. You know, he was an ebullient, outgoing kind of guy, and he claimed to be an Afro-American activist who had been involved in all kinds of Things. He was quite uh, boastful, I suppose, but he had a lot of personality, and he could cook. They went up to Mount Curry and had a meeting with some of the members of the Warrior Society that was enforcing the blockade. We met with folks, and it was good, and later that night there was a kind of circle. I remember there was a fire, and we were all sitting around, and people were telling stories and introducing themselves and talking about politics, what they thought was important. 
And that's when the general, as I knew him, Clay Hart, piped up and said that he thought the uh, blockade was all well and good, but really what you needed to do was step things up. And one of the things would be to blow up one of the bridges on the road, because if the bridge was blown up, the cops couldn't do anything. The cops might be able to arrest a bunch of folks blocking the road, but blowing up a bridge or two would really make things impossible. And he also talked about the fact that not only could he get dynamite, but he could also get AK-47s from Afro-American Vietnam vets who had automatic weapons. The response from the local indigenous leaders? Nobody said anything. Nobody at the meeting, people just listened. Nobody said, oh, yeah, that's a great idea, or sure, I love some, or whatever. Nothing happened. I remember thinking, this is just adventurism. certainly not anything that we wanted to be involved in. And frankly, I also remember very clearly thinking, if they want to do that stuff, they don't need our help. I'm the last guy you're going to talk to about dynamite and, and guns. I wouldn't, you know, I barely know which end to point. These are people that hunted all their lives, knew how to use this various stuff. So it just seemed a bit adventurous and bizarre to me. We know Warren Hart gave the same pitch to Indigenous activists that were occupying Anasanabe Park near Kenora, Ontario. And there, too, he was rebuffed. And though none of these groups accepted Warren Hart's offers for guns, we know he had them. That's because Ricky Atkinson was stealing scores of them for Hart. In 1975, Rosie Douglas was deported from Canada back to his native Dominica. But Warren Hart's moment in the spotlight was just about to begin. In 1974, a man by the name of Robert Samson was caught planting a bomb at the Montreal home of Sam Steinberg, who owned a major chain of grocery stores in Quebec. The bomb went off in his hands. He lost some fingers and was arrested at the hospital. But Robert Samson was an RCMP agent. This agent was doing work on the side for the organized crime. That's Robin Philpot, a journalist and the publisher of Baraka Books. You might remember him from our episode on the Demare family. And so he went to court, and in 1976, he spilled the beans. He said, you think that was bad? You should see what we did with the RCMP. Samson was implying that he committed worse crimes as a member of the National Police. This admission came just six years after the October crisis, when the federal government had imposed martial law in Quebec after a Quebec minister and a British diplomat had been kidnapped by the FLQ. The relationship between sovereigntists and the RCMP continued to be tense. That same year, the Parti Québécois was elected in Quebec and René Lévesque became the premier. His government launched the Kebla Commission to investigate these kinds of dirty tricks from the police. And the federal government launched an inquiry of their own, the McDonald Commission, to specifically investigate the RCMP. And what they discovered was shocking. Hundreds of illegal break-ins, including into a press freedom organization and the Parti Québécois headquarters. They stole membership lists, all kinds of information from it, very sensitive personal information about the people, which would be used later 
in recruiting, illegally recruiting informers and provocateurs. Then there was theft of dynamite, which was carried out by RCMP officials in April 72. And the dynamite was placed in different places in October 1972. This was all done by RCMP people. This is totally illegal. They also put out a bunch of false communiques signed by the FLQ, so-called by the FLQ. In the two years after the October crisis, newspapers printed numerous communications from the FLQ in which they threatened to kidnap the premier and ask Quebecers to take up arms. The majority of those messages had, in fact, been written by police informers. As people say here, from about 1971 on, the FLQ was the RCMP. It later emerged that the RCMP even had a Parti Québécois cabinet minister on their payroll, Claude Morin. Now, Claude Morin denies ever, ever being influenced by the RCMP because it came out in the 90s, but he was on their payroll for seven or eight years. And probably the most infamous incident of all was a literal barn burning. It was a, a farm which is called the Petit Québec Libre, uh, Free Quebec. It was a, a place where militant sovereignists would meet. The reason given was that they were supposed to meet with the Black Panthers, which there had been meetings with the Black Panthers because there was a great solidarity in these questions. And that's what their explanation was, that that's why they had to go there. And going to burn the barn was interpreted by Keb as being just trying to inspire fear among Quebecers, among sovereignists. During the 1970s, the RCMP had been engaged in a systematic campaign to discredit various liberation movements throughout Canada. Quebec sovereigntists, Marxists, Black power, and Indigenous activists were all targeted mercilessly. And what the police feared most was that these movements would work in solidarity with one another. Here's David Austin again. What you get in these RCMP files is this expression of fear that if we allow these groups and individuals to continue to do what they're doing, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, this is what is in the files themselves, these folks are going to destroy the Canadian state. And it was during the McDonald Commission that it was revealed that one of their primary weapons against these movements was a black American man. He was a demolitions expert. He had founded the Baltimore Black Panthers, and his name was Warren Hart. There was some dramatic testimony today before the McDonald Commission into the RCMP. It came from an American named Warren Hart, who says that for four years he worked as an agent in Canada and other countries. His job was to infiltrate radical groups like the Black Panthers. Roosevelt Rosie Douglas was to be Hart's chief target. Today, Hart testified that he had been told to break the law to get information. He opened mail, broke into buildings, and secretly taped Douglas's conversations. His orders, he said, came from the Mounties directly. Warren Hart was an FBI agent who had been loaned to the RCMP in order to infiltrate black groups in Canada. In essence, he was an agent provocateur who was brought here to stir up problems where they did not necessarily exist. From the very beginning, Warren Hart had been an undercover agent. In April 1971, the RCMP went to their American counterparts and asked if they had someone with experience infiltrating black organizations. The Department of Justice set up a meeting with Hart, 
a man who hadn't just gotten inside the Black Panthers, but actually set up the Baltimore chapter while he was a federal agent. The RCMP hired him, brought him to Canada, and sent him to prison so he could befriend Rosie Douglas, who they considered a national security threat. Hart worked for the Mounties for five years, spying on and subverting radical groups across the country. You know, it seems as though part of the agreement between him and the RCMP was that at some point he would be given Canadian citizenship or, or at least landed immigrant status, Canadian residency. But the RCMP apparently reneged on their side of the bargain. Warren Hart was denied residency, and the police force didn't pay him tens of thousands of dollars that Hart claimed they owed him. So he went public. Warren Hart told the McDonald Commission about the work he did for the RCMP. He told them that he was spying on Rosie Douglas. He even talked about the fact that his RCMP minders instructed him to record conversations between Douglas and Warren Almond, who was the Solicitor General of Canada. But today, it's clear that Hart lied extensively to the McDonald Commission. He claimed to have thwarted numerous radical groups that were intent on violent action. Few of the people that Hart had spied on were called on to testify. Instead, the McDonald Commission ultimately portrayed Hart as a victim of the RCMP. They found that he was guilty of no criminal offenses. And they said that, quote, over four years, he performed laudable service for the people of Canada. Of course, they never interviewed Ricky Atkinson. Ricky was in prison when the McDonald Commission was going on for a bank robbery that he did for Warren Hart. He was 17 years old. And then someone comes, hey, man, you're in the newspapers. I go, what does it say? Something about this guy, Warren Hart, man. So it was on the board in front of the kitchen. I go down and I look, and it's a full page about Warren Hart not getting paid for $60,000, acquiring a bunch of weapons stolen from King Saul Sporting Goods store down the street, which started his encroachment in the black radical groups in Canada. So the, the, those guns we gave Warren Hart impacted people across the country. I think of that more than anything else. Not only do we get sucked in, but in sucking us in, we enable so many other people to get set up by those guns and their lives destroyed. Ricky felt utterly betrayed. I'd have killed for Hart up until the newspaper article. If you have said something about Hart that I disliked, I would challenge you to a fight to the death. I'd put a knife in your hand and say, finish the conversation. I'm going to stab you. Ricky, his brother, his friends, the teenagers that Warren Hart targeted on behalf of the Canadian government were far more vulnerable than people like Lennox Farrell or Gary Crystal, who Hart tried to convince to commit violent acts. His shtick didn't work on them because they were older, more sophisticated. And then he landed here in Alexander Park. And for him as a government agent, he landed in what he thought was Eureka. I could suck these young kids in, I could create the criminality that the government wants to see, and then I could rat them out to the government to get the money that I'm here to get, and that's exactly what he did. So I look at myself as a victim, a political prisoner for sure, because the government elected to do that to me. They didn't have to. They didn't have to choose me to be Hart's right arm, to learn this stuff, and then allow Hart to rat me out so that I go to prison and he gets paid. This government allowed that to happen. So just imagine taking a bunch of kids, criminalizing them, 
and then sending to prison those kids because they were criminalized by your agent. Ricky got out of prison with a criminal education and a grudge against a system that had used him for its own purposes. He devoted himself fully to crime. In the 1980s, he led that Dirty Tricks gang on a robbery spree the like of which Toronto had never seen before. They never killed anyone during a robbery, but he was eventually caught, and he has spent much of his adult life in prison. I can't say heart ruined my life because I had a criminal conviction for uh, stealing a sweater. So I can't blame him for ruining my life by saying I now have a criminal record because I picked that criminal record up. But he changed the direction of how I think. I'm not stealing sweaters anymore. I'm stealing your whole store. That's the difference. I'm not robbing a bank anymore. Like, just, I'm robbing the whole city. It's like, that's the difference. And when I'm robbing a bank, I'm not just going to go in with a note. I'm going to go in with a machine gun. I'm going to have a truck with bombs and cars. I'm going to have war wagons all over here. So that's what it did. Looking back on it today, he understands why the government targeted him. He was a young, charismatic, intelligent black kid. So they saw me as a potential leader. They took me out of the game. Because in those days, there's lots Fred Hampton and there's lots of people in the Black Panther Party that were teenagers that were murdered by the government because of the same thing. So I could understand their fear from their colonialist perspective. But to take a 16-year-old kid who really doesn't have a criminal record and push him into major criminality when they could have did the opposite, they could have came and said, twisted that around and say, you have all this potential of leadership. We will support you via a grant and you can take this course in leadership and eventually go into business or do this or even come into the government, do this, and do that. But instead, they didn't. They did the opposite. What they did is they, they chose a marginalized group of people to exploit, criminalize, and then profited by it. He's not a government. They profited by saying publicly, we have a handle on black radicalism in our country. While he was in prison, Ricky Atkinson helped start a TV show. Today, prison TV and podcasts are common, but Ricky's show, called Contact, was maybe the first in North America. And one day, the warden dropped in to see him. They had a chance to interview Warren Almond, the former Solicitor General of Canada. This was the same man who was in charge of the RCMP at the time that Warren Hart had caught Ricky in his web. Of course he was interested. So that's how Ricky Atkinson found himself face-to-face with the man who was ostensibly in charge of the police force that had changed his life forever, that took a promising young black kid who dabbled in crime and turned him into a hardened career criminal. And I said to him, I said, uh, my name's Ricky Atkinson, and you gave a gun to Warren Hart because they would have had to, and that's the gun I used for my first adult criminal offense, and I've been in jail primarily ever since. And he said... Warren Hart was good for the government at the time, but bad for Ricky Atkinson, consummate politician. So in other words, he admitted Warren Hart's role in my life. It's closure. It's closure from the guy that did it. He's the guy that ordered, paid Warren Hart. He's the guy that Trudeau might have heard my name or might not have, but he would have for sure heard my name. And he'd had my file in front of him. And then there's a little 16-year-old kid that we're going to destroy, Mr. Hart. Yep, go at it. To be clear, we don't know for sure whether Warren Allman would have known about what the RCMP did to Ricky, but considering how much the McDonald Commission got wrong, 
we can't rule it out either. Ricky Atkinson has been out of prison for a few years. Today, he's back in Toronto. He spends a lot of his days in Alexandra Park, the neighborhood he grew up in. The neighborhood where Warren Hart and the RCMP found him. We spoke to him in the pottery studio that he runs. So, for five years now, I have given back to the community that my father's from and I grew up in by running a pottery shop and teaching ceramic art to kids at my own expense. Everything here is mine. I started another gang in Alexander Park, so you cops be aware. I started another gang in Alexander Park, and the gang is now doing filming. So I got four or five guys from Alexander Park, now black guys. Two Muslims, three other black guys here with cameras who've jumped on board to for my vision of what do we want to say about the justice system. That's primarily what our show is about. As for Warren Hart, we know that he moved back to the United States after he was denied residency in Canada. Not long after, he became involved in a scheme to smuggle weapons to the apartheid government in South Africa on behalf of a Canadian weapons manufacturer. And then, he largely disappears from the historical record. Until 2000. That year, the 72-year-old Warren Hart was arrested in Miami in connection with a cocaine trafficking scheme. His co-accused were Miami-Dade police officers. He died in prison in 2007. Ricky Atkinson didn't know that Hart had gone to prison until we told him. But I don't see that as a big stretch. Cocaine to guns to bank robbery money, same thing, right? Same thing. So the fact that he was a crooked cop all along, that's the best way to put it. He was a crooked cop. He wasn't good for this government. He sucked this government in. He sucked us in as kids, but he also sucked in the federal government at the time because he wasn't a good guy. They hired a criminal to catch criminals that didn't exist. He made the criminals so that they would exist so he can get paid. All these years later, there's one incident with Warren Hart that Ricky can't quite shake. And I keep thinking about this all the time because it's insanity at, at its best. When he was still a teenager, one of Ricky's brothers got in a fight with another Nova Scotian from the neighborhood. It was clear that Ricky and his crew were going to have to throw down with this other kid and his friends. I phoned Hart and I said, bring the war wagon. So he brought the war wagon to a, it's a car we had with all our heavy weapons. In it. And he brought it. So there are these guys we're going to beef with. I don't want to say their names. Most of them are still around. But they're all strutting. Come on, they got chains and sticks, maybe some knives. And they figure we'd come with 10 or 20 guys and it'd be that kind of a fight. I opened a chunk of the card. I got machine guns, uh, 30-odd sixes, 308s, uh, my big 8-millimeter. So I grabbed a 45 Thompson. I hold the Thompson up, and I go, and they were gone. The neighborhood was clear. But I'm thinking now, because I'm only 16 years old, what if I was insane? And Hart brought those guns, and I just went, 10, 15 guys dead. How would that have impacted our country? And this country allowed that to almost happen.
The people that Warren Hart and the RCMP targeted, people like Rosie Douglas, weren't engaging in any kind of violent, subversive action. Everything that he was engaged in politically was pretty much above the table. There were no real secrets. Rosie Douglas only returned to Canada once after he was deported. In the year 2000, he came on an official visit as the Prime Minister of Dominica. It's clear what the RCMP and the Canadian government feared most wasn't that any of these Black or Indigenous or Quebecois activists were breaking the law. They feared that they would find common cause with one another and work to change the system. And in some ways, the RCMP were successful in fracturing those alliances. So that kind of sowed the seeds of mistrust at a moment when there was the beginnings of genuine solidarity between Black political movements and, and their Indigenous equivalent. The McDonald Commission ended the RCMP's role as Canada's spy agency, and CSIS was created. But that doesn't mean the surveillance or the infiltration has ever stopped. It's just changed, become more sophisticated. So the moment that we're in right now will be history one day. And we'll be looking back at this moment, you know, realizing that there were certain things that we were not fully aware of that transpired in much the way that they transpired in the 60s and 70s. That's your episode of Commons for the week. If you want to support us, click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. This episode relied on work done by David Austin, Antero Piatila, Linda McQuaig, Mina Shum, Christina Royster-Hemby, and many others. There's a lot more to this story that still hasn't been told. If you know anything else about Warren Hart, please send it over to us. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at commonspod. You can also email me, arshi at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Dami Lola Oname. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes, or go to canadaland.com slash join. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.